Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And today our reading will be chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 1. Today we're going to be talking about the great or the grand reversal. Because this sermon is going to sound very different than last week's sermons did. And it's supposed to. Ray Ortland says that in the next unit in the prophecy of Hosea, the three human names of doom in chapter 1, verses 2 through 9, uh, with new significance, are reversed, each one into a promise of mercy and restoration. The divorce announced in chapter 1 is truly in force, but only for the Israel of Hosea's generation. Divine mercy is not defeated by human sin because God purposes to win a people for himself by sovereign grace. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, (coughs) and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Let us look together to the Lord as we pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open up our hearts this morning to listen and hear and engage with the preaching of the Word, that you would give us special help. We know that our hearts get hardened during the week. We know that sometimes we're not the most teachable. We know sometimes we're not in the best shape when we come together to worship you. We're weighed down and burdened down, and some of us are angry and frustrated and disappointed. But we do pray today that you would capture our hearts and that you would speak to us words that are life. And that you would encourage us and lift us up. And that you would correct us and help us get straight on the line of walking with you. Now, Father, we look forward to your speaking to us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you know, last week we talked a lot about Hosea and the wife he was commanded to marry. Her name was Gomer. And she was probably a prostitute we don't know that for sure but she was certainly promiscuous and I take it to be she was promiscuous before he married her as well as after and then we looked at the children and what God was doing is he was taking his prophet Hosea and he was using him as a symbol as a picture of what was going on in the relationship between God and Israel in the north And that relationship had reached its terminus. God was fed up with his people. And so 
Hosea had three children. One we know for sure by Goma, two, other, two others who we don't know whether or not for sure Hosea was the father. But they, God told him to name these children names that actually represented his heart and his judgment toward the people of God. But then we look at the text today and it's astonishing. It's almost as if, is, is this the same book we read last week? Because it looks like the message was not one of impending disaster. While the covenant itself was inviolable, enjoyment of its blessings by any individual or any generation was conditioned upon continuing obedience. That is the nature of the old covenant. For those who rebelled against God's requirements and refused to repent, the future prospect was dire. As the holy God would impose his righteous covenant sanctions on their disobedience. But what would come after that? Could there be a future beyond the desolating impact of God's judgment? Suppose you were Hosea's original audience and you heard chapter 1 alone, you'd be shaking in your sandals. And you would be wondering to yourself, is this it? Is it over for us? Is it over for Israel as a people? And the pressing need that Hosea saw was to alert his audience to the danger that they were in and to literally call them to repentance. And so from that perspective, the sequence of the prophet's oracles is primarily a literary device dating from Hosea's perspective uh, and compilation to them into the final record which we now have is the book of Hosea. But even so, right from the start of Hosea's activity, there would have been a faithful remnant in the north. You remember Elijah, don't you? And you remember Elijah facing the prophets of Baal. And uh, that was a great victory on Mount Carmel. And then the next day he heard Jezebel wanted a piece of him. And he was extremely depressed and he hightailed it as fast as he could go to get away and he was in a cave and he asked God to kill him just take my life you ever been there just take me as some people say come Lord Jesus Maranatha just get me out of here and that's where Elijah was and God said to him what I have 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal God always has a remnant he always has a people and even though judgment fell on this generation, and that judgment was severe, the judgment did not wipe out in totality everyone. And so the change of theme at this point in Hosea's prophecy is also related to a change in speaker, because it's no longer the voice of the Lord we hear, but rather Hosea relating what God has revealed to him. And what he's doing now is talking about a time of future blessing. The thematic break recognized here in chapter, Hebrew chapter divisions, where chapter 2 in the Hebrew text actually begins after chapter 1, verse 9. And so the numbering is a little different. But the flow continues. The reuse of the children's names in chapter 2 and verse 1 constitutes a link 
with what precedes, even though it is by way of contrast. And so the pattern of a time of judgment upon the nation is followed by restoration, and it constitutes the theological structure of Hosea. As we go through this book, you're going to see it over and over again. God will speak a word of judgment. And this is sort of monotone compared to how amplified it gets as the book goes on. Sort of reminds me in some ways of the book of Revelation and the intensifying of the judgment through time. But along with the threat of impending judgment upon a people where God has literally said, I'm, I'm divorcing you, I'm out of this relationship, I'm done with you, uh, my patience has met its end, there is always following that, in every case, a message of great hope. But remember, hope only becomes real to those who repent, to those who see what the Word of God is saying and turn and turn toward Him. And so, there's a word here about the restored for fortunes of people, and what is envisioned here is amazing. Uh, and so Hosea is very careful here to say the possibility of deliverance was inherent in any call for repentance in which the people's impending doom was announced to get them or to induce them if it was possible for a change of heart on their part. Simply the blessings to be enjoyed in a renewed relationship with the Lord might induce a change of heart. For we know, Paul tells us, the goodness of God leads us to what? Repentance. It isn't only the threat of judgment. Sometimes what melts the heart is the almighty grace of God. And when we're allowed to see that for the first time. Now, the Lord may abandon and disown one generation or many more because of their disobedience and... His covenant, <coughs> excuse me, his covenant commitment still stands and he will take action when he considers it appropriate to ensure its fulfillment. While an unbelieving generation will exhaust the Lord's patience and draw down on themselves his judgment, there is always hope for a reversal of the people's fortunes, never based upon human achievement or attractiveness, but on divine grace and commitment. The great reversal embodies the outworking of the love that refuses to permit sin and rebellion to have the last word on the destiny of God's people. There is this amazing thing that's found throughout the Bible that is called grace, and it is outrageous. Uh, the outrageousness of God's grace, indiscriminating grace, always gets people stirred up. And that's because real grace is simply inexplicable. It's inappropriate. It's out of the box. It's out of bounds. It's offensive to people. It's excessive. It's too much. It's given to the wrong people and all those things. And yet grace is the most important concept in the Bible. You can call it what you like, you can categorize it, you can vivisect it, you can qualify, quantify, or dismiss it, and none of it will make grace anything other 
than precisely what grace is. Audacious, unwarranted, and unlimited. Now, as we think about the grace of God that God shows to his people over and over again, J. Gresham Machen once wrote, The grace that God gives to us, the very center and core of the whole Bible, is the doctrine of the grace of God. The grace of God which depends not one whit upon anything that is in us, but is absolutely undeserved, resistless, and sovereign. Christian experience depends for its depth and for its power upon the way in which that blessed doctrine is cherished in the depths of the heart. The center of the Bible and the center of Christianity is found in the grace of God. And the necessary corollary of grace of God is salvation through faith alone. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to the rebels, the unmerited favor of God. Grace is sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is God reaching downward to a people who are kicking and screaming in rebellion against Him. Grace is contra-conditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. Grace is most needed and best understood in the midst of a knowledge of our sin, our suffering, and our brokenness. We live in a world that tells us constantly we have to earn, we have to deserve, we have to merit. And these result in judgment. Condemnation comes by merit. Salvation comes only by grace. Condemnation is earned by man. Salvation is given by God. That is why everyone wants and needs grace. Judgment kills. Only grace makes alive. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Karma is all about getting what you deserve, but Christianity teaches that getting what you deserve is death with no hope of resurrection. Grace is the opposite of karma. Some of you need to think about that for a moment. Grace is the opposite of karma. While everyone desperately needs it, um, grace is not about us. Grace is fundamentally a word about God. His uncoerced initiative and pervasive extravagant demonstration of care and favor. Grace is the very essence and being of God. And there are many, many words we can use to modify grace. We could call them adjectives. Amazing, free, scandalous, surprising, special, inexhaustible, incalculable, wondrous, mysterious, overflowing, abundant, irresistible, costly, extravagant, and many, many more. My favorite is John Calvin, who calls it gratuitous grace. Gratuitous is the idea of something being unwarranted or uncalled for. That was one of my dad's favorite ways of getting in my face, was not only did you do what was wrong, but it was totally uncalled for. It was totally uncalled for. There's no reason you could ever justify behaving that way. And that's what God's grace is. It's totally uncalled for. Sometimes grace comes and gets us when we don't even want it. And we don't even want Him. 
And so while an unbelieving generation will exhaust the Lord's patience and draw down on themselves His judgment, there is still always a hope for reversal. Based not on human achievement or attractiveness, but on divine grace and commitment, the great reversal embodies the outworking of the love that refuses to permit sin and rebellion to have the last word on the destiny of God's people. So this transformation will bring divine punishment to, a, to an end and permit renewal of covenant blessing. This will include, according to verse, chapter 1, verse 10, increased numbers, restored and heightened spiritual fellowship, harmonious reintegration of separated brethren, a single united leadership and new fruitfulness, and the reversal formula of chapter 2, verse 1, revokes the judicial sentence embodied in the names of the prophet's children and shows the people interacting in kindly fashion as they acknowledge their joint status in the Lord, which is derived from his gracious and compassionate provision. And so there remains a question then as we look at this prophecy of how is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? How will it find itself full of meaning? And so the Old Testament itself does indeed record <laughs> various ways in which there was a reuniting, in some sense, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after the fall of Samaria. That the, no longer does the northern kingdom, after this point, and the judgment in Samaria and the Assyrian destruction of the north, ever mentioned of Israel being separate and apart, or Ephraim. And so the amazing thing is that when you look at prophecy in the Bible, and this will help you a whole lot as you read prophecy, please understand that the prophetic word is fulfilled progressively. It doesn't happen all at once. First, there will be a historical fulfillment of the prophetic word. There will be. There always is in the Old Testament. But it's never the complete fulfillment. Then there <laughs> excuse me, is a fulfillment. I don't feel bad. I just got this stuff going on. So hang with me. Don't feel sorry for me. Pray for me. But hang with me. My wife gave me this cold. She said, don't ever say I didn't give you anything. She didn't really. I just got it myself. But... I got it from Mary, actually. No, uh, <laughs> the prophetic word, gosh, and I got to go home with these people. The prophetic word, <laughs> it has a historical fulfillment. But it also has a greater fulfillment in the first coming of Christ, another fulfillment in the church, and ultimately the complete fulfillment in the second coming. And so what the prophet of Hosea, prophet Hosea is saying here is there will be four or five things that are going to happen. But the fullness of them will never be known until the only true Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. And that is our ultimate goal. And so understand when reading prophecy, there's approximate fulfillment, but there's also future fulfillments down the line. And that is exactly how uh, most of the scholars 
and I have to say it this way, who, is, who are in my tribe, understand how this fulfillment will occur. For example, we do know that the people of God went into exile. And uh, there was a further fusion between the peoples of the divided kingdom. And certainly the restored community thought of themselves as embodying all Israel as when Ezra arrived in Jerusalem and offered 12 bulls for all Israel. After the exile, the people in Judah and Jerusalem were united to the extent that they no longer lived in separate states. But there was still the ongoing problem of the small number of returnees, so that their situation could hardly be said to exhaust the extensive promises given here. Opinions differ as to how fulfillment will in fact be achieved. But in the light of the New Testament appropriation of these promises to the church, incorporating Jew and Gentile alike, both Paul and Peter quote Hosea here. And so the view presented here is that their ultimate significance is spiritually realized in the heavenly inheritance of the people of God. And so the prophet describes Revelation that he has been given of what the sovereign intervention of God will restore as regards the status, status and numbers of the covenant people. He says here, as the sand of the sea, where have we heard that before? The promises to Abraham, right? And even before then we hear this promise. But as the sand of the sea, Abrahamic covenant, I will surely make your seed as many as the sand which is on the seashore. Other promises of countless offspring include Genesis 13, 15, and 32. They are now reaffirmed and their fulfillment forecast for the period after the imposition of punishment that was in chapter 1. And so the metaphor points to the large number involved which cannot be measured by weight and cannot be counted by census. Conscious of the symbolic role played by his own children, Hosea uses sons of Israel, the traditional phrase for the whole nation, viewed as those in covenant union with the Lord. The expression had first occurred in Exodus 3.10 with the plural of the noun son, referring as it often does, to both male and female. So the term is used specifically of the people of the north alone, and that seems to be the case here also. However, the original focus of Hosea's audience in their covenant status is extended to all who claim to be in similar spiritual relationship to God. And so the promise is set in a much wider context. The slaughter of the land due to the Assyrian invasion, as well as the infighting of the concluding years of the northern kingdom, and the subsequent deportation of many of its inhabitants would have made this promise even seem more unattainable by the end of Hosea's ministry. What is envisioned in his prophecy is a renewal of their national fortunes on a Solomonic scale. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for greatness. 
It is only the divine commitment to the covenant relationship and the divine intervention in power that will be able to turn around the conditions of the people so effectively. And so the historical fulfillment of the day always left people disappointed. The numbers weren't as great. The rebuilt temple wasn't as glorious. Why? Because they're pointing forward, not just a historical fulfillment, but an ultimate fulfillment. And so, it was forecast that their fortunes would be reinstated through a changed relationship with God. And it would be a spiritual restoration, but in the place refers to a geographical location. Clearly the land of promise where the curse has been pronounced upon them because of their disobedience. In the very spot where God had once disowned them by declaring, you are not my people... That covenant curse will be reversed. Indeed, it is important to remember that what will be restored to them is an enhancement far greater than what has been taken away. And it might have been expected that they would be accorded the designation of my people. But in significant extension of their privileges, they will be called the sons of the living God. No longer will the shadow of Baal worship cast over the land. The name children of whoredoms will be abandoned as obsolete. Living God employs the generic expression for deity. And so therefore there is great hope in this fulfillment. But bitter tensions and animosities will be consigned to the past and they will act in harmony as they set for themselves one leader, one head. Notice that Hosea doesn't use the term king. That's because, in my opinion, he is referring to a messianic figure. And the messianic figure he is pointing to was fulfilled in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the one leader. If you read Matthew's Gospel carefully, you will see how Jesus is presented as the new Israel. That after he is baptized, he is taken into the wilderness and tempted of the devil. And as Adam failed the test, and then Israel failed the test in the wilderness, Israel was given ten tests in the wilderness and flunked all ten of them. And if you had been there walking beside them, you would have flunked all ten of them too pointing that we need a leader beyond. We need a better king than David. We need a better king than Josiah and his reforms. We need a better king. And so the king, as Jesus is presented as the true Israel, and you know right after his birth he had to flee. He had to flee down to Egypt. And then he comes back out of Egypt as an exodus. Then he goes into the wilderness with the devil and he's tempted. Then he goes to the mountain and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And you can continue to go through Matthew's gospel. And what Matthew is screaming to his Jewish audience is this. He's here. This is the one we're looking for. This is the Messiah. The only true Israelite who is able to keep covenant with the Lord. One in whom judgment sh will never fall because of his own failing, but one who will receive judgment on our behalf. And so that's what this guy is seeing 750 years 
before Jesus came. And so we could conclude by saying that the Bible, that doesn't mean it's the end of the sermon, by the way, but we can conclude by saying that the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. Now let me walk through this a little bit more with you. At a certain level, the promises of restoration were fulfilled when the exiles returned to Judah after the Babylonian exile. In Jerusalem, there dwell some sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin and some of the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh. And there dwelled uh, so that the returnees from the north as well as from the south were in the restored city. But the reality of life in the Persian province of Yehud hardly matched up to the scope and grandeur of the pledges God had given regarding the restoration of the people. As with the promises of Scripture, that more is to be found in Christ, apart from Him, the purposes of God never reach consummation. The question which remains is, how will this conclusion be realized? Now, there are those who believe and support the view that Old Testament predictions of restoration to the land and subsequent growth in numbers still await a literal fulfillment in time to come for ethnic Israel. However, when Paul examined uh, Hosea, both Peter and Paul interpret the prophecies of chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 1, as ultimately fulfilled in the incorporation of the Gentiles as those included in its scope. And so the implication of God's covenant with Abraham is the basis upon which spiritual blessing would extend beyond Israel to all the families of the earth. That's the whole point of Pentecost. The whole point of Pentecost of having all those languages and all those people is a big signal, a big signal that the people of God will now include is international. It's no longer ethnic. It's no longer separate. It is one people of God, Jews, Gentiles, from every tribe, nation, tongue, and kindred are united in one person, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church, the head of its body. And so, the return uh, beyond Israel, the blessing would go to all the families of the earth. The return from exile in Babylon is to be eclipsed by the numbers of Jews and Gentiles brought into the church of Jesus Christ, who is the one leader to be acknowledged in that day. Now, Ministry at the time of the impending, impending cataclysm that Hosea points to satisfied two very strong requirements. Number one, urgency in the warning of the dangers facing a generation in pressing the need for spiritual individual repentance on the spiritual rebellious. But also Hosea is trying to minister to a believing remnant who's trying to cope with the hazards and perplexing circumstances confronting them as they anticipate the glorious uh, resolution. And so I want you to look at one last phrase and we'll be done. 
And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now Jezreel, as I've told you before, in the first chapter meant bloodshed. And that is in reference to uh, the overtaking of Ahab, killing 62 of his relatives and displaying their heads in the valley of Jezreel. Ahab, who'd stolen Naboth's vineyard, who was the husband of Jezebel, the Baal-worshipping queen. And so it was called bloodshed, indicating judgment to fall upon the people of God. But the other name Jezreel represents is sowing, like sowing seed, like fruitfulness. And so in the future, there's an anticipation of the sowing and fruitfulness that occurred in the valley of Jezreel, which was the most fertile valley in all of Israel, where trade routes happen. And so it's a picture of blessing beyond measure. In my opinion, what Jezreel points to in this sense is the new heavens and the new earth that we run into at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. That is the ultimate fulfillment. But there's also one other fulfillment that I want to talk to before we're done. And that is the fulfillment that is personal. Because in many ways, the idea they shall go up from the land is the idea of going up is used often in reference to resurrection. And so there will be a great resurrection, a going up. The very same phrase used for resurrection. And so there will be anticipated in the last days the fulfillment of the great resurrection. The same resurrection that Ezekiel talks about in his vision of the valley of bones, of dry bones, where God speaks and the bodies come together and come to life, pointing ultimately to a great resurrection. Now, here's where I want to go. How is the promise of Hosea here, the prophecy, related to you and to me? Well, just as Israel needed to repent of sin, you and I need to repent of sin. You and I need to look for the one great leader who will bring all together. We're in need of regeneration. We're in need of a spiritual resurrection. And that is what we have when we come to Christ. We experience a resurrection beyond measure spiritually. And we become adopted children of the living God. And we bear fruit to his glory. We become, as it were, a living example of the valley of Jezreel. And the famous parable of the prodigal son tells the story of the lost son who is reunited with his father. It is a picture of the welcome our heavenly father extends to sinners. And it too involves a resurrection. In Hosea 1.11, God's people should go up from the land, rising, as it were, out of the ashes of God's judgment. In the same way, the parable of the prodigal uh, and the father says, For this my son was dead, and it is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And so, this had a historical fulfillment uh, as the... Assyrians came down and destroyed Israel. Later on, the Babylonians 
destroyed Jerusalem and took the people into captivity, some of which were from the northern kingdom. So the first fulfillment was the return from exile. But I got to tell you, it was a bitter disappointment. Very few people came. It was paltry. It didn't fit the prophecy. More had to come. The second fulfillment of this prophecy is the person of Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, and who I told you in Matthew's gospel reconstituted the nation Israel in one person and obeyed. He was the only faithful person to fulfill the covenant of works on our behalf and render a righteousness God accepted. And then ultimately it's fulfilled in you and I as we come to life by the Spirit of God, as we repent of our sins, as we come to our Savior, as we are adopted into the family, as we anticipate the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, and then ultimately when Jesus comes back. You didn't know all that was in there, did you? All of that and more is in there. That's how the prophetic word speaks to us. And it speaks to us of the only living hope there is. By democratizing God's people and shifting the membership potential from Israel to all nations, Jesus initiated the great day of Jezreel. In his work, special value was added to the sense of chapter 2, verse 1. It becomes abundantly clear that it refers not just to the Israelites being restored to God, but to the fact that people who could never have made such a claim, now by reason of Christ's sacrifice for the world, have the potential of joining with God's people. Hosea could hardly have foreseen exactly how dramatically and on what a great skill, scale God would eventually fulfill these words of salvation. It is not yet completed with respect to Israel or the nations. So the book of Revelation tells us. And so what a glorious passage. Right after the announcement of impending doom and judgment, God comes with a word of hope. And we are, those of us who are believers, participators and evidence of the reality of that hope. I hope that gets through today. Final thing, it's all accomplished by the grace of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is true, it is alive, it is powerful. It speaks to us, it lays hands on us, it carries us, it drags us. So Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves rejoicing in the ultimate fact that we are participants in this prophecy that once we were not a people but now we are a people that once we had not received mercy but now we have received mercy and that we are sons of the living God that we have been adopted into the family that you have put your name upon us now Lord as we continue to worship you may we give back to you out of gratitude a portion of that which you have entrusted to us as stewards And may you be honored in the way we give and in the way it is used. For the glory of Jesus' name, amen.